Hello and welcome to Iris for Sunday, February 12th, 2023. Your reader is Trevor and I'm pleased to bring you the Sioux City Journal for today. Let's take a look at the weather forecast and then we'll start with the beginning of the paper and work our way through together. So as we look to the weather we have in store for the next few days. So for today, we can expect colder with times of clouds and sun, a high of 37 degrees. Tonight will be partly cloudy with winds 7 to 14 miles per hour and a low of 20 degrees. Monday, milder with plenty of sun, high of 55 and a low of 37. Tuesday, rain and drizzle, breezy and cooler, high of 42 and a low of 30 and the winds will be about 10 to 20 miles per hour. So bundle up if you have to go outside. Wednesday, cloudy, cooler, breezy in the afternoon. Winds 10 to 20 miles per hour, high of 33, low of 13 degrees. And Thursday, a high of 17 degrees, a low of 0 degrees. Winds northwest of 25 to 35 miles per hour, and the wind's becoming strong. It looks like possibly snow at that time, so bundle up and be warm, everyone. All right, let's begin with our mini editorial at the bottom of the front page, and then we'll work our way through. The mini editorial begins... Which parents get to decide what is taught in school and what books to ban? The ones who want to, quote, protect their children from anything uncomfortable, or the ones who want their children to be exposed to diversity, accurate history, and respect for others? Signed, Ann Knudsen of Sioux City. And the front page story, it has a headline of Freshman Reflections, and there's a picture of first-time Iowa uh, senators who are at the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines, and they are attending a hearing. Subheadline, first time term lawmakers talk first month in legislator from Des Moines. Siouxland sent seven first time state lawmakers to the Iowa legislator on January 9th. In the month since, those seven men, six Republicans and one Democrat, have weighed in on multiple contentious bills focusing on issues such as school choice, caps on medical malpractice awards, and the teaching of LGBTQ topics in schools. Quote, no vote here is taken lightly, Senator Rocky DeWitt, Republican of Lawton, said. Realizing decisions made here affect the entire state is humbling. DeWitt is joined by fellow Senate Republican first-termers Lynn Evans of Aurelia and Kevin Alonis of Salex. In the Iowa House of Representatives, the freshmen are Representative J.D. Schulten of Sioux City, Representative Zach Deacon of Granville, and Representative Ken Carson of Ottawa. All but Schulten are members of the Republican Party, which has a 64-36 to 36 advantage in the Iowa House and a 34-16 to 16 majority in the Iowa Senate. Like DeWitt, Schulten, who ran for Congress in 2018 and 2020, similarly mentioned the weight of each vote he's already taken in his first month, while also noting he didn't expect to find a lot of consensus as a member of the minority party. Quote, so far, the biggest surprise has been how much bipartisan stuff gets done. The newsworthy bills are the divisive ones, he said. Evans agrees. The number of bills that are bipartisan has been a pleasant surprise, he said. In fact, when legislative disputes have happened over the past 30 days or so, Henderson said he's seen them not solely down, not solely come down to partisanship. Quote, frankly, some, most of the battles are not across political lines so much as they are internal as you wrestle with what is best versus what is expedient. I know that there is a potential battle on every issue, he said. The legislation placing a cap on cash awards for pain, suffering, and other non-economic complications from medical malpractice lawsuits 
is one which scrambled the two parties. The bill, House File 161, passed the Senate by a 29 to 20 vote and the House by a 54 to 46 vote. Just in delegation, just in the delegation of seven first-time Siouxlanders, four voted yes on the cap, that being Carson, DeWitt, Evans, and Henderson, while three opposed the plan, Alones, Deacon, and Schulten. Before debate was underway Wednesday, DeWitt said, quote, this will likely be a long night as there are many both for and against. With the school choice bill, Evans was one of only three Republicans in the Iowa Senate to vote nay. Nine Republicans in the Iowa House opposed it. No other Republican legislator in Siouxland joined Evans in opposition. If the use of eminent domain for carbon capture pipelines comes up this session, Alun said he could see dissension among legislators. Before the session ends, DeWitt anticipates property tax issues to come up. In the run to the 90th legislator, DeWitt, a former Woodbury County supervisor, said he wanted to make sure any possible freeze on rates is tempered so Iowa's 99 counties are protected from any shortfalls. Quote, it has the potential to hamper counties in their budgeting process, DeWitt said in early January. Henderson, meanwhile, said the state needs help to find ways to help homeowners who are on fixed and limited incomes deal with property taxes. Evans is expecting property tax issues to play a big role in 2023 as well. Quote, there are members on both sides of the aisle that agree that controls on property tax increases need to be addressed. How this will work in practice is where the conflict lies. Through his time so far, Evans, a former school superintendent, said he's proudest of having been appointed to the Early Childhood Iowa State Board. Quote, that is, this is truly an honor, he said. Alone said he intends to address issues of medical freedom, such as vaccine mandates. Quote, I'll keep trying to focus on this issue and hopefully support others' related bills and introduce some of my own, he said. Property taxes didn't make the top of Schulten's list of potential battles, though. Quote, there are four types of bills I hope doesn't get on the floor. One, all the culture war crap that punches down. Two, the SNAP bill that doesn't allow people on SNAP to be able to get white grains, baked, refried, or chili beans, fresh meat, or sliced, cubed, or crumbled cheese. Three, the Senate bill that allows 14 to 17-year-olds to work in mining, meatpacking, demolition, operating guillotine, shears, and other dangerous jobs, and full abortion bans, Schulten said. Amid the discussions and debates and votes in workdays that began at about 7.30 a.m., Schulten said he has learned to love the place he calls home even more. Quote, I love the drive home to Sioux City more than the drive to Des Moines, he said. He then added how much he has appreciated getting to cover so many different matters. Quote, I had one day where I had several subcommittees where I had to do research about hunting raccoons to consumer data protection to knowing the regulations and limits of the Iowa Utilities Board. Ken Carson from Ottawa said the days can be hectic, overwhelming, frustrating, and challenging, but that he's been helped by those around him. Quote, there are many very good people here, he said. The biggest decision for Henderson, decision-making. Well, all decisions will eventually be subject to revision because the world is not static and perfect will always be the enemy of the good. Alonso concurred in his own way. Quote, it is a challenge to deal with the reality that in this role you, you cannot please everyone and must make those hard decisions. I realize more than ever that I have to strive to understand my constituents and what they want, but ultimately I have to let God be my guide. All right, let's return back to the front page of today's Sunday Sioux City Journal, where we look to the eminent domain and CO2 pipelines. 
Headline, Landowners Push to Restrict Eminent Domain for CO2 Pipelines. Landowners and environmental activists gathered in the Iowa State Capitol last week seeking to lobby legislators to restrict carbon dioxide pipelines that are in the works across the state. Dressed in red and sporting signs and pins decrying eminent domain and CO2 pipelines, the activists have become a recurring site at the Capitol as they hope to convince lawmakers to slow the steady march of three pipeline companies seeking permission from the Iowa Utilities Boards to capture carbon from Iowa ethanol plants and shuttle it underground. Pipeline-related legislation in this session mostly has come from Senator Jeff Taylor, a Republican from Sioux, City, Sioux Center, through though none of the bills he has proposed has advanced. Taylor has filed five bills related to pipeline restrictions. The first being Senate File 100 requires pipeline companies seeking eminent domain to disclose investors. Senate File 101 eliminates eminent domain authority for hazardous liquid pipelines. Senate File 102 repeals the law allowing access to land for surveys for pipelines. Senate File 103 requires pipeline companies to gain permission from landowners before entering into easement negotiations. Senate File 104 requires pipeline companies to obtain 90% easements to be granted eminent domain. Taylor's crusade to restrict the power of pipeline companies is based on support for landowner rights, he said, not in opposition to the companies or their mission. He said he's sympathetic to their cause in the effort to bolster the ethanol industry, but he opposes the use of eminent domain to achieve that goal. Quote, I'm not necessarily opposed to people having those pipelines run through their land, but it should be voluntary, he said. It should not be using the power of government to force them or coerce them into granting an easement. The constitutional standard is eminent domain for public use. This isn't a public use. It's not a pu public utility, he added. Taylor's bills are filed in the Senate Commerce Committee, and the activists said they were hoping to encourage the committee's chair, Senator Waylon Brown, of Republican of Osage, to schedule public hearings on the bills. Democratic process involves subcommittees where people can weigh in and express their opinions, and denying that to people who are impacted by the biggest things happening in, to Iowa is a disservice to all Iowans, said Jess Mazur, Conservation Program Coordinator for the Iowa Chapter of the Sierra Club. Brown did not respond to a request for comment. The bill banning eminent domain for pipeline companies was the chief interest of the coalition gathered at the Capitol many of whom are refusing to sign voluntary easement negotiations with the pipeline companies seeking to build through their land. Carbon dioxide pipelines are regulated by the Iowa Utilities Board, and as public utilities, they have the authority of eminent domain, the taking of private property for projects that benefit the public, if granted by the state. But opponents of the pipelines argue that as privately owned projects, they don't serve a public good. Quote, it's really strongly offensive to us as people when the government is going to allow our land to be condemned just for the sake of private profits and not for the good of our communities, said Jessica Wiskus, landowner from Lynn County. Landowners also said they felt harassed by pipeline company surveyors going on their land without permission. Dan Wall from Dickinson County is one of several landowners being sued by Summit Carbon Solutions for refusing entry to his land. Quote, they've demanded since day one that they're going to take my land whether I agree to it or not, Wall said. Iowa law gives pipeline companies and other public utilities the right to survey land along a proposed route after giving 10 days notice by mail to the landowner. Under those conditions, the entry is not deemed a trespass. But a lawyer representing Wall and several other landowners is arguing in court that the law allowing entry is unconstitutional. One of Taylor's bills would remove the provision, that provision entirely. Well, I think the pipeline companies have a point, Taylor said. 
Quote, the way I read Iowa code, they seem to have that right at the moment, but I don't think that's proper. I don't think that's appropriate. So I would like to see the law change. So it would be trust, that would be trespass without permission. Three CO2 pipeline projects are being proposed in the states. Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Carbon Express plans 680 miles of pipeline across 29 northern, western, and central counties. Wolf Carbon Solutions Pipeline would cover four counties in eastern Iowa. Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway would cover 900 miles from the northwest to the southeast corners of the state with offshoots along the way. The projects are intended to capture carbon dioxide emitted from ethanol plants to store deep underground in either Illinois or North Dakota in an attempt to lower carbon emissions created by the plants. For the ethanol industry, reliance on the carbon capture pipelines could be the difference between survival and closing down. Iowa Renewable Fuels Association Executive Director Monty Shaw told lawmakers last week. States such as California and Oregon have mandated clean fuel standards and federal tax credits bolstered by the recent Inflation Reduction Act will improve ethanol's profitability if they meet certain low carbon levels. Shaw said these pressures mean without a mechanism of lowering ethanol's carbon intensity, ethanol production would likely move to a state where pipelines where plants have access to carbon pipelines. Quote, there is a very real, very new dynamic in our economics that is going to make or break ethanol production over the next five years, he said at the hearing of the House Environmental Protection Committee. Quote, Iowa has the most to gain from this new economic reality, and it has the most to lose from not aligning. But to be built, the pipelines need to go across hundreds of miles of land, and some landowners are not ready to allow their land to be used for the projects. Summit and Navigator have both indicated the intent to use eminent domain for the projects, but they have not finalized the extent of the request as they work to obtain voluntary easements. Summit Carbon Solutions, which is the farthest along in, permitted, in the permitting process, has received voluntary easements for more than two-thirds of the proposed land of, of the proposed route in the state, or 1,060 Iowa landowners. Summit spokesperson Jesse Harris said in an email. Quote, there's an overwhelming level of support tells us Iowa landowners along the route view the project as critical, supporting the state's most important industries, ethanol and agriculture, Harris said. We look forward to continuing to work with landowners, stakeholders, and policymakers to advance our nearly $987 million investment in Iowa's future. Representatives for Wolf Carbon Solutions, on the other hand, have said they don't plan to use eminent domain for the project. Taylor said he has received some pushback from ethanol companies in his district, for introducing the legislation. Quote, they're primarily looking at it from a point of view of making money for themselves and for their companies and for their co-ops, and that's fine. But I have a broader perspective, he said, looking out for good government, looking out for constitutional government. While Taylor's proposals have not seen action in the Senate, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said he expects House Republicans will file a bill next week addressing eminent domain and carbon pipelines but he left details sparse on his contents. He said he hasn't had a conversation with the full House Republican caucus and what they would support. Quote, I want to have a conversation with the caucus before I come out and say what that would be, he said. I want to make sure there's a level of comfort. Democratic state leader Zach Walls of Coralville said discussions around the pipeline regulations have been happening without Democratic input, despite Democrats' interest in finding a bipartisan policy to address landowners' concerns. Well, Republicans have not been willing to have that conversation, he said. They're trying to handle things purely internally, so until there is a decision by Republican leadership 
to try to have a bipartisan dialogue about this, there's no compromise possible. Mazur said she thinks there is enough support to pass a bill restricting eminent domain rights for pipeline companies. Quote, we have enough votes in both chambers between the Democrats and the Republicans to get these bills passed, she said. It's going to be, is there a will from leadership to put landowners and Iowans over these pipeline companies? All right, let's now turn to the opinion section of today's paper, where we look to the journal editorial board and then the letters to the editor. Editorial board, their opinion is titled, Now Might Be the Time for Political Decorum. We had to laugh when Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the dividing line in America is no longer between right and left, it's between normal and crazy. If she had been watching the State of the Union address she would have she was assigned to rebut, she would have seen Representative Major Taylor Green screaming liar several times during President Biden's speech or another colleague swearing at the president. If she had watched earlier, Sanders might have caught Senator Mitt Romney telling Representative George Santos that he didn't belong in the room. Toss an outburst that prompted Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy to try to silence his peers, and it became clear what Huckabee was talking about. The crazy was there in her party, failing to provide the decorum we once thought was a Republican hallmark. Quote, a new generation of Republican leaders is stepping up, not to be caretakers of the status quo, but to be change makers for the American people, Sanders said. But many of these those new representatives have some real explaining to do. During Tuesday's rebuttal, Sanders also said she signed an executive order that banned the term Latinx from official use. Why this was a pressing issue in Arkansas is anyone's guess, but it did shore up her, her talking point, which was that a radical left was causing the country's woes. Quote, most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace, but we are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. Had Sanders listened to Biden's speech, she would have learned he was interested in protecting Social Security and Medicare, two planks that are hardly part of a, quote, left-wing culture war. Those attacks on LGBTQ issues, minorities, and education are ones offered by her and her peers, not those seniors sitting at home. Creating problems instead of solving long-standing ones is the real issue, something those changemakers need to rethink. No one, certainly not Sanders, Green, or the others, is expected to agree with Biden, but rather than spout off in hopes of finding someone who wasn't listening, they should lean in, hear what the president has to say, and try to find some common ground. Around here, we call that governing. All right, let's now do the letters to the editor. First one, the letter is titled, Board Should Delay Sale of Crescent Park. I would like to see the Sioux City School Board delay the sale of the Crescent Park School until they can study a partnership between the library, Parks and Recreation Department, and themselves to turn the building and grounds into a branch library and community center. The current branch library across from the marketplace, Hy-Vee, is barely used, but especially by children because of the hazards of crossing Hamilton Boulevard. The school already has pedestrian traffic lights in place for children's safety in crossing a much smaller and less busy street. I think the library would see a huge increase in children using it as well as adults. The Parks and Recreation Department could have programs there all year long in the gym and on the playground. Possibly the museum could set up small displays in one or two classrooms. Other classrooms could be used for storage. The school board could have reducing reading and other programs there during the summertime. Retired adults and teachers could mentor children there throughout the year. I know there would be remodeling costs, but the previously mentioned benefits would easily be worth it. 
A fundraising campaign would could easily be started and would receive a lot of support. If these organizations could cooperate and think outside the box a little, Crescent Park could have a huge beneficial influence for years to come, especially for the children. Signed, Tom Anderson, Sioux City. The next letter is titled, Destroying What Others Fought For. I am the product of the greatest generation. I'm a baby boomer. I'm aware the greatest generation sacrificed so much that we, their children, could have a fair, free, and decent chance of a better life than they had. As we, the baby boomers, age and enter the twilight of our lives, we, we too wish the same for our children and grandchildren. I'm afraid now of madness has infected a portion of the U.S. population where truth, the rule of law, and common decency are vanishing and being replaced with lies, cheating, stealing, and the destruction of democracy as we know it. A few elected unhinged government representatives seem to want to destroy everything so many have sacrificed for, and no one does anything to stop them. If I lose Social Security, veteran benefits, Medicare, or any other current benefits because of the unhinged officials destroy it all, so be it. I have lived my life. If the unhinged are not stopped, the U.S. will suffer the same fate as all of history, great empires, and destroy themselves from within. Signed, John Stetson of Sioux City. And the final letter is titled, Book Banning Seldom Works. The journal's opinion piece last Sunday on book banning was both balanced and sensible. History should have taught us that book banning is not only the wrong thing to do, but that it seldom works. When the adventures of Huckleberry Finn was banned by many libraries, Mark Twain penned thank you letters to those libraries because the banning had the effect of dramatically increasing sales of the book. As the journal's opinion piece definitely pointed out, the internet makes the banned material much more ubiquitous and accessible than it would have been but for the ban. Signed, John Polifka of Mapleton, Iowa. All right, let's now turn to page A10, The Week in Iowa. It's a collection of shorter stories of events that happened statewide in the last week. In the news, headline, Reynolds signs 3% school funding. Funding for Iowa's K-12 public schools will increase by around $106.8 million under a law Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed last week more than she initially requested, but less than schools said they needed. That amounts to a 3% increase over last year, bringing total school funding to $3.7 billion. The per-pupil cost for each student will be $7,635. The measure passed both the House and the Senate with mostly Republican support. Democrats argued the funding was not enough to keep up with the rate of inflation and prevent budget cuts. Headline, GOP proposal would loosen child labor laws. An Iowa bill would loosen child labor laws in a bid to shore up the workforce issues in the state. The bill, which cleared its first hurdle last week, would open more jobs to 14-year-olds, like working in freezers and meat lockers and loading and unloading vehicles. It would also allow 14- to 17-year-olds to seek waivers to work in more labor-intensive industries like manufacturing and mining. Headline, National Dems Confirm Early Primary Calendar. National Democrats drove another nail in the Iowa caucus's coffin last weekend, approving changes to its 2024 primary calendar that stripped the state party of its first-in-the-nation status. The Democratic National Committee approved the calendar passed by the Rules Committee in December, giving early waivers to South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, Georgia, and Michigan. Headline, Malpractice Bill Awaiting Reynolds Signature. Cash awards for non-economic damages, including medical malpractice awards, would be capped at $2 million for hospitals and $1 million for doctors under a bill 
that is close to becoming law. The measure passed both the Iowa House and Senate last week, and Governor Kim Reynolds is expected to sign it in the coming weeks. Supporters of the CAPS, which include health care providers, said they were needed to attract doctors to the state, keep medical centers financially stable, and keep insurance rates competitive in the state. Opponents of the measures argued the measures limit the ability of families and victims to seek justice and said large medical malpractice verdicts are not a major problem in Iowa. Headline, Regents Cancel Healthcare Union Negotiations. The University of Iowa's governing body has canceled upcoming negotiations with the union representing thousands of healthcare workers at the University of Iowa Healthcare. The union accused the Board of Regents of violating Iowa laws around public employee unions after the negotiations were canceled. Headline, Lawmakers Call for Strict Abortion Ban. Two lawmakers called for a Life at Conception Act banning all abortions during an anti-abortion rally at the Iowa Capitol last week. Lana Schultenberg, a Republican from Davenport, said she would introduce the measure in the near future. Republican leaders have said they would not consider the new abortion restrictions until the state Supreme Court decides on a 2018 law banning abortions at six weeks. Headline, E-Verify Mandate Advances. Iowa employers will be required to check the federal E-Verify system to see if applicants are eligible to work in the U.S. under a bill advanced in the Iowa House last week. The Senate has passed the bill in previous years, but it has never cleared the House, and lawmakers express skepticism that it will advance further this year. Headline, Restitution Rules Could Change. Judges will be able to consider offenses committed by a victim of violent crime against the offender before requiring the offender to pay restitution under a bill being considered in the legislature. The legislation was inspired by the November 22 case of a Des Moines woman and sex trafficking victim who killed the man who she, who she said had repeatedly raped her. All right, and final articles. Headline, 2024 Watch. As the 2024 Republican caucuses loom, former ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley will be visiting Iowa this month, according to national reports, as she plans to announce a run for president. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who is also laying the groundwork for a presidential run, will be visiting Cedar Rapids this week after a Pence-connected group announced an ad buy in Iowa. Headline, COVID Cases Back Up. Iowa's new COVID-19 cases were up in the week ending Wednesday for the first time in a month. The state reported 1,517 new cases, up from 1,495 the week before. There were 122 Iowans hospitalized with the virus compared to 135 last week. All right, let's now turn to the sports section or section B of today's Sunday paper. Headline, and it has to do with boys wrestling. Headline, Sergeant Bluff Luton sends nine wrestlers to state. Subheadline, Helens De Leon wins 170 district title to stay unbeaten. From Sioux Center, Iowa. Nine Sergeant Bluff Luton wrestlers qualified Saturday for the traditional state wrestling tournament, positioning the Warriors for another team trophy. Sergeant Bluff Luton, which placed third in the state duels tournament in Coralville last week, the highest finish in school history, crowned six district individual champions at the Class 2A district in Sioux Center. Three more Warriors placed second. In Class 2A, the top two finishers at districts advance to the state meet, which starts Wednesday at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. The Warriors easily won the district team title, finishing with 212 points, compared to 165.5 for second place Boyden Hall slash Rock Valley.
Bishop Helen finished third with 127.5 points as the three Crusaders qualified for state. Helen's Ethan DeLeon, a University of Nebraska recruit, will be seeking his first state title after finishing second at 170 pounds in last year's Class 2A tourney. On Saturday, DeLeon remained undefeated this season, running his record to 41-0 with a 5-3 decision over Sergeant Bluff-Luton senior Zalon Ellington in the district title match. Nico Venturi at 106 and Sir Brandon Watts at 160 also won district titles for Heelan, while Ben Walsh placed second at 120. Sergeant Bluff Luton district champions included brothers Ty and Bo Kodam, sons of head coach Clint Kodam, at 145 and 132 pounds, respectively. Ethan Skoglund at 120 and Dalton Van Wy at 126. Hunter Steffens at 152 and Sean Zimmerman at 285. The Warriors also received second-place finishes from Jace Curry at 106, Grigarit McHugh at 182, and Ellington at 170. At a Class 2A district at Estherville, South O'Brien South O'Brien finished third in the team race behind Algona and Estherville Lincoln Central. Okoboji Hartley Melvin Sanborn was fourth. Sheldon South O'Brien's Jarrett Roos, ranked first in the state at 182 pounds, ran his second, Porsche, his second record to 40-0 in the district championship match, while he pinned Spirit, Lakes Park's, Spirit Lake Park's Gabe Poolman. Roos Jr. placed fourth at 185 pounds in Class 2A last season. Then the Class 2A at Sioux Center team scores. Number one, Sergeant Bluff Luton at 212, Boyden Hole Rock Valley, at 165.5. Number three, Sioux Center at 103.4. Number four was Bishop Heelan at 127.5. Fifth place, Central Lion George Little Rock at 116 points. Sixth place is MOC Floyd Valley at 79. Seventh place is Ridgeview at 42. And number eight, OAB CIG at 19 points. All right, let's continue more boys wrestling. Headline, KP, Hinton win district titles. Subheadline, top area wrestlers get another shot at state titles. From Hull, Iowa. After coming up short in the state wrestling championship match last season, Kale Morrill will get another shot at the first individual crown this week. The Akron Westfield Jr. qualified for the state tournament after winning a Class 1A district title at Western Christian High School on Saturday. Morrow moved his record to 34.1 with a technical fall over Garinter Terrell Ruthven Ashire freshman Caleb Sweden in the 113-pound championship match. Morrow lost 3-1 to number one seed Caleb Coffin of Don Bosco in the 2022 Class 1A finals at 106 pounds. Two other top-ranked area wrestlers looking for their first state titles also qualified Saturday for the Class 1A state tournament, which starts Wednesday in Des Moines. West Sioux's Mikey Baker, a three-time state medalist, won the 145-pound district title at Hull by injury over Woodbury Central's Ryder Coley. Baker improved his record to 32-2. Westwood senior Jackson DeWalt stayed unbeaten, winning by fall over Hinton Brooks, Binobos at the 195-pound district finals at the district in Ottawa. Dewald, who has been a state runner-up for two straight years, ran his re- record 43-0. to 
Kingsley Pearson won the team title at the district at Hull with four Panthers qualifying for the state tournament. Winning district titles for Kingsley Pearson were Carson Sejunsons at 132 and Tyler Oroskowski at 138. Hinton captured the district team title at the district at West Monona High School, sending six of the wrestlers to the traditional state tournament. Capturing individual district crowns Saturday for the Blackhawks were Ethan Satchow at 127 and Gabe Anderson at 170. All right, let's now turn to uh, girls' high school basketball. Headline, Healing Girls Win Conference from Council Bluffs, Iowa. Abby Lee scored a game-high 22 points at the Bishop Healing Girls secured the Missouri River Athletic Conference title with a 79-46 road win over Council Bluffs Abraham Lincoln Friday night. Kenley Mice had 13 points and Brooklyn Stanley had 12 for the Crusaders, who finished with a 13-1 record in the conference, a game ahead of second place Sioux City East. The number three ranked team in Iowa Class 4A, Helan now stands at 19-1 overall. The Lynx dropped to 11-9 overall. The Crusaders close out the regular season at number 9 ranked Council Bluffs Lewis Central on Monday. Next game was Sioux City East 54, Spencer 50. Alexandra Flattery scored 22 points and Trishel Miller added 19 as the Black Raiders closed out the regular season with a close road victory Saturday afternoon. East ranked number 14 in Iowa Class 5A finished with 16-4 record. The Black Raiders opened the postseason at home Again, at against Council Bluffs Abraham Lincoln on February 18th. Jada Piercy's 20 points led three Tigers in double figures. Jenna Merchant added 15 and Maureen McDermott had 10. Spencer, ranked number 12 in Class 4A, ended the regular season with a, a 25-6 mark. The Tigers will face either Denison Schweissig at Sergeant Bluff Luton at home in its first regional game on February 18th. The Monarchs and Warriors square off on February 14th. Next game was New Old Fonda, 63, Ridgeview, 37. The Mustangs turned up for another deep postseason run with a road win Friday night. Mary Walker led a balanced New Old Fonda scoring attack with 13 points. Lenny Hogriff added 10 points and Kira Youngers had 9 for New Old Fonda, ranked number 2 in Iowa Class 1A. Quote, this is a physical game where we are able to grind out a win, New Old Fonda head coach Dick Youngers said. Quote, our girls did a good job of finding the openings in the defense, but we were not always able to convert. I did love the balanced scoring as we had many people step up and make plays for us. Shea Dutler's 13 points led Ridgeview, which ended the regular season with a 11-9 record. The Mustangs, which f- finished the regular season with a 19-2 record, will open postseason play on Tuesday against Gildan Ralston at Newell. Newell Fonda, which lost in the semifinals of last season's Class 1A state tournament, is the number one seed in Region 2. Ridgeview's postseason also begins Tuesday with a Class 2A Region 3 quarterfinals matchup with Alta Arela at Alta. The next game was Sergeant Bluff Luton 49, Council Bluffs Lewis Central at 40. The Warriors improved to 12-9 with a home win Friday night. The Titans ranked number 9 in Class 4A and fell to 14 to 5. No individual statistics were immediately available for either team. Next game, <clears throat> South Sioux City 60, Omaha Gross 42. Bailey Durant scored 27 points to lead the Cardinals to a road victory Friday night. Brooklyn Heineman added 12 
points for South Sioux City, which improved to 11-11. Next game, Ponca, 56, Homer, 24. The Indians moved to 20-1 as they ended the regular season on the road Friday night. Homer fell to 12-11. Both teams opened Nebraska Class C2 sub-district play with first-round games on Tuesday. Elk Point Jefferson, 45, Bearsford, 28. Bentley Kolbaum scored 17 points to lead the Huskies to a home win Friday night. Ella Murigam, 7 points, topped the scoring for Bearsford. And finally, why not 61, Hardington, Newcastle, 32. Amber Lawson scored 15 points in Kinsley Holmes, and Maya Sudbeck added 11 each as the Blue Devils finished the regular season with a 11-7 record Friday night. Many Lange's 11 points topped the scoring for the Wildcats, whose regular season ended with a 11-9 mark. When it opens postseason play against Howells Dodge Tuesday in Nebraska Class D2, while Harding to Newcastle starts the Class C2 sub-districts against Ponca on Tuesday. All right, let's continue on with uh, regional sports coverage. Let's go to the college level. Headline, USD women fall to South Dakota State. Subheadline, Jackrabbits win in Vermilion for first time in nine years from Vermilion. The South Dakota State women led 24-7 after one 35-9 at halftime and cruised to a 79-48 win against South Dakota Saturday inside the Sanford Coyotes Sports Center. It was the Jackrabbits' first win in Vermilion in nine years, ending a seven-game losing streak there. They got 14 points from Paige Meyer and 12 each from Haley Timmer and Brooklyn Meyer. South Dakota State shot better than 50% from the field and out-rebounded the Coyotes 43-30. to South Dakota got 15 points, 7 rebounds, and 4 assists from Grace Larkins, but lost its fourth game in, in, in a row. The Coyotes made 3 of 25 shots in the first half, including 1 of 17 effort from 3-point range. But we had a hard time offensively getting it going, but that's a tough basketball team, USD head coach Kayla Karras said. They bumped us and sent us off track, and instead of fighting through contact, we settled for a lot of threes early. This game is going to make us better. The last time we played them, we bounced back in a big way. They challenged us, and we have to grow from it. Carly Duffney has had seven points and six rebounds, and Alexi Hempy scored seven points off South Dakota's bench. The Coyotes were 13 of 29 from the field in the second half, but the team's 48 points were a season low. South Dakota's final home game come on Thursday and Saturday against Omaha and Denver, respectively. Alright, let's now turn to college boys basketball. Headline, Nebraska stuns Wisconsin in OT. Subheadline, Kelsey Tominga, Derek Walker, key second half surge. Derek Walker let out a celebratory scream at midcourt. The senior forward had just made a second straight layup in overtime, forcing Wisconsin to take a timeout after Nebraska took a four-point lead over Wisconsin with just two minutes to play in extra time. At that moment, Walker knew the Huskers weren't losing, not after they erased a 17-point deficit in the second half and forced overtime. And they didn't. Nebraska held on and then some, taking over in the game's final five minutes to beat Wisconsin 73-63 on Saturday at Pinnacle Bank Arena. Kesey Tominga placed Nebraska with 22 points for his third straight 20-point game, while Walker added 18 points. Sam Griesel chipped in 15 points, Jamarcus Lawrence scored 11 points, and Blaze Kaida scored grabbed 11 points off rebounds off the bench. 
Nebraska found itself in a sizable hole as Wisconsin carried its first half momentum to, into the second to reach a 17-point lead. But then vault magic. Nebraska erased the deficit in a mere five minutes after going on a 20-2 run. Back-to-back three-pointers from Tamiga cut it to 11. Then others got involved. Walker hit a layup. Graysel converted and, and won. Blaze Kaida hit a second-chance shot. Then back-to-back three-pointers once again from Tamiga, the latter giving Nebraska its first lead of the game. From there, white-knuckling to the finish. With seconds to play in reg- regular regulation, Nebraska and Wisconsin were deadlocked at 61 points, and Wisconsin had the final look. In storybook fashion, Wisconsin drew up a play for Omaha native Chucky Hepburn, but Hepburn shot at, three, at a three-point attempt from well beyond the arc, rimmed out. Hepburn paced Wisconsin with 19 points. A similar comeback situation presented itself in the first half for the Huskers, as Nebraska found itself down by 10 points with 9 minutes to play until halftime. The usual suspects intervened. Free throws from Greisel, a layup from Walker, and a layup from Lawrence cut Wisconsin's lead to four. Moments later, Tomanaga heaved a rainbow shot from the FNBO logo, sending those in Pinnacle Bank Arena to their feet as the ball swished through the net. That shot, the one that cut Wisconsin's lead to just one, was Nebraska's only made three-pointer in the first half. After that, though, the Wisconsin pieced together a six-point run and closed out the first half, outscoring NU 13-3 to hold on to an 11-point lead at the break. All right, let's now turn to page B6, or the business section, where we look to an old building in Sioux City that might be torn down. Headline, quote, hate to see it go, but it is in bad shape. Subheadline, one of the last major buildings of the Sioux City Stockyards faces demolition. From Sioux City. Rick Stewart worked at the Swift & Company turkey plant in Sioux City for a couple of seasons from 1976 to 1978, when he was in his early 20s. The plant, at the time about 50 years old, remained in operation for only one more season after he left. In the 43 years since his closure, the condition of the plant, a long-neglected four-story brick and concrete structure, painted a shade of beige, graffitied, and with many of its windows broken, has declined quite noticeably. The city has come to see the deteriorating building at 1804 Dace Avenue as a sort of attractive nuisance. It's red-tagged as unfit for occupation and has been ordered demolished. Quote, hate to see it go, but it is in bad shape, Stewart 68 said of the plant, where he worked mostly in the shipping department, driving truckloads of box turkeys to cold storage. Quote, probably from a safety standpoint, it definitely needs to come down. Sioux City Code Enforcement Manager Daryl Bullock told the city council recently that the deserted plant has const- constantly has vagrants in it and has become a big play hangout for kids. Bullock told the journal recently that the city has repeatedly had to engage contractors to, quote, secure the building and to keep out unwanted visitors, usually by welding its doors shut and putting up yet more boards. Then people pried the doors open again and the building needs to be secured again. During a journal visit to see the property this past Tuesday, several exterior doors were wide open. In spite of the the several state of severe state of dilapidation, the building itself remains structurally sound, Bullock said, though parts of the interior are not sound. Quote, unfortunately, there are many, many hazards within the building, he said. An ignominious end now appears likely for one of the last major buildings of the Sioux City Stockyards. 
a plant that was considered highly modern when it was new in the 1920s, but came to be seen as antiquated and inefficient before it closed in 1980. It went through a succession of owners and a prolonged period of dilapidation. The Chicago meatpacking firm of Swift & Company came to Sioux City in 1917. In 1924, Swift purchases purchased the assets of the defunct Midland Packing Company and moved its operations to Midland's state-of-the-art plant in the stockyards, just east of what is now the abandoned turkey plant. Quote, there was a big packing plant there, comprised of half a dozen buildings or so, said Tom Munson, archives manager of the Sioux City Public Museum. In 1926, Swift spent $175,000, or $100,000 depending on the source, to build what the company called a produce plant, which housed poultry and egg production and some dairy products. The building was, at the time, located at the corner of Dace and Chambers Street. The latter stretch of road later became what is known as Cunningham Drive today. Quote, they were slaughtering and processing chickens and turkeys, and they were candling eggs that were laid there. They were getting those ready for the market, Munson said. Quote, it's also a dairy and a creamery, so they were producing things like milk and butter and cheese. The first floor of the building housed offices receiving and shipping the creamery and the egg candling and butter cooler rooms. The second floor was used for dressing, grating, and cooling of poultry. The third housed poultry feeding operations. It's not clear what the fourth floor was originally used for, but at the time it was much smaller than the first three floors. When it was new, the produce plant was heralded as a, quote, fine new building, quote, and an attractive addition to the stockyards district. In contemporary news coverage, a 1926 journal article described it as one of the most modern and completely equipped in the country, where, quote, the latest scientific method of handling cream, eggs, and poultry have been introduced. The produce plant was, was but one part of a sprawling swift meat packing complex, the bulk of which processed hogs and cattle, but mostly hogs, Munson said. At some point during the 20th century, the poultry plant began to use solely for to turkey processing. As a turkey plant, it operated seasonally, usually early fall through late winter, Stewart said. Plant workers were sidelined during the off-season. Some of them collected unemployment, some had other jobs. I would usually work another job and then go back as soon as they called me back, Stewart said. Swift continued operating in the turkey plant through the 1970s before the decision was made to close it permanently during the off-season in 1980, costing about 200 jobs. The nearby meatpacking plant had closed down in 1974 after a swift move to a new plant. Management at the time of the closure said the aging turkey plant had been operating at a loss for some time. Over the past five years, it has become apparent that the Sioux City plant was not profitable. Until now, the company needed the plant's capacity, though. Since the turkey market has changed and Swift has enough capacity elsewhere, it is more economical to move the operation, said Bill Dillman, assistant director of public relations for SMARC. Swift's parent company at the time said in 1980, quote, it was pretty old and dilapidated, Stewart said of the facility. For a time beginning in the 1980s, the building was occupied by a series of businesses, the Apollo Solar Energy Company, a solar panel company, EnviroSafe Air, an asbestos removal company, ProPipe Refrigeration, Lacey's Furniture, and an auto repair shop, Munson said. It's also believed to have been used as a warehousing during this time period as several of the occupants likely did not make use of the entire vast building. Stewart's son played in a band that rented a space in the building after Swift moved out. Quote, it was actually the old room that we had our freezer in, so that was kind of interesting, but it was leaking really bad and all the windows were broken out, Stewart said. The last known business 
occupant was a pet salon located there circa 2011. Quote, none of them was there for a very long time, months instead of all the post-Swift occupants of the building. Meanwhile, catastrophic fire in 2006 ravaged the nearby KD station, the former Swift packing plant, leading to its demolition in 2009. Due to its separation from the other buildings of the Swiss complex, the Turkey plant escaped largely unscathed from the calamities that damaged the other Swift buildings, including the legendary Swift explosion of 1949. With the demolition of KD station, the Turkey plant became one of only two surviving Swift structures in the former stockyards the other being a nearby smaller brick structure built circa 1951 that Swift used for offices. One or two buildings each also remained from the old Cudahy and Armour packing complexes. Quote, of all of our big meat packing plants we had here in Sioux City in the early 20th century, there are little bits of each one still around, Munson said. Like Armour, which was at the southern end of the old stockyards, there's still one little office building. In Cudahy, which was just to the north of that, there's still a part of their cold storage warehouse that's part of the more, that more modern meat processing center. And then there's the, still the two swift buildings left. The old turkey plant changed hands on numerous occasions in the decades after swift moved on. The price declined precipitously over time. In 1999, it sold for $350,000 according to county property records. In 2011, it was sold for $90,000. In 2020, it sold again for $40,000. The 2020 sale was to Harrisburg, South Dakota-based entity DLRS Properties, Inc. The journal was unable to reach the owner. Bullock said the latest owner of the property, in common with others of the past, had planned to rehabilitate it for a new use, though what exactly the new use would be was never actually known to the city. For a time, the owners had been cooperative with the city officials, but that ended about a year and a half ago. They have fallen through on that, he said. Quote, several people have come to be the owners of that building and have done nothing with it. They've had plans of rehabbing the building in some manner, but nothing has come through, Bullock said. The city has been in touch with the owner to let them know about the planned demolition. Bullock said, the owner's intentions going forward are not known. Demolition could cost as much as $750,000, which would be invoiced to the owners. Should they not pay, the cost would be assessed against the property. And because the building is not considered an, quote, imminent danger, meaning a structural failure or collapse is not to believe to be likely in the near term, the demolition may not take place for another year and a half to two years. Should a more significant structural risk present itself, the demolition could occur sooner, Bullock said. On the other hand, the property owner could still step in and have a role in the process. It just depends on what the owner is going to be doing or tries to do with it at this point, Bullock said. All right, with our remaining time together, let's do Dear Abby. Her column titled... Today is Woman's Estrangement from Father Creates Second Rift. Dear Abby, after my mother died several years ago, my father's sometimes violent behavior flared up. A few years ago, I decided to stop spending time with him. My sister, who has received and may continue to receive significant financial support from dad, is scolding me for it. I've asked her to respect my choice and to stop criticizing, but she continues to contact me, asks to see me and accuses me of, not, of punishing her and my father over nothing, and makes vague apologies for him without referencing specific behavior. My dilemma is whether I should continue trying to get through to her. I'd like to see her children, but I'm sure I'm sure whether she'll respect my boundaries if I see her in person. Her continued haranguing is stressful. I'm tired of being labeled a punishing, overly sensitive shrew for attempting to set boundaries with my father. However, I'm loath to cut off all contact with her, given that I'm not seeing my dad. Is there a middle ground? Or am I wasting my time trying to get through to someone who doesn't want to hear me? 
Signed, Family Trouble in California. Abby writes, Dear Family Trouble, Tell your sister you love her and very much enjoy seeing her and children with one proviso. You do not wish to discuss your fractured relationship with your father. Ask if she can respect your wishes and make clear that if you, if that would be too difficult for her, you will understand and not visit. You do not have to do anything that makes you uncomfortable, and you should not allow yourself to be forced into contact with an abuser. Dear Abby, my mother has just informed me that she expects me to send her and her new husband anniversary cards every year and her husband's Father's Day cards. I was 51 when Mama remarried, three years after my father's passing. I sent her husband a birthday card and to text him on Father's Day, but I feel disingenuous sending them, him, anniversary or Father's Day cards. Her husband is not my father. He has his own adult children. Incidentally, Mama and her husband do not send me Mother's Day cards. I do not want her husband to think I consider him my father. I would feel disloyal to my father if I were to do what she's demanding. Is my mother's expectation reasonable? Should I send cards just because she wants me to? Signed, Gracious Enough. Abby writes, Dear Gracious, Send your mother and her new husband an anniversary card as you would any friend or relative you wish to congratulate. That she would expect you to treat her new husband, a quote, new addition to your family as a father figure, is ridiculous. Why are you texting him on Father's Day? He was never and never will be your father, and I don't think you should be arm-twisted into catering to Mama's fantasy. Alrighty, let's uh, now do a quick weather recap, and then we'll say goodbye for today. Again, for the Sealand 5-day forecast today, it will be colder with times of clouds and sun. Winds about 7 to 14 miles per hour and a high of 37. Tonight will be partly cloudy with winds 7 to 14 miles per hour and a low of 20 degrees. Monday, warmer, milder, with plenty of sun, high of 55, low of 37. Tuesday, rain and drizzle, breezy and cooler. Winds 10 to 20 miles per hour, high of 42, low of 30. Wednesday, cloudy, colder, breezy in the afternoon. Winds 33 20 to 20 miles per hour, high of 33, low of 13 degrees, and Thursday, possibly some snow, winds becoming strong, a high of 17 degrees, and a low of 0 degrees. So that brings us to the end of the reading for Iris for the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 12th, 2023. I hope you all have had a wonderful time, and I hope you all have a wonderful week. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye.